Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Amen. The texts this morning are from John 3, 16, and then 1 John 4, 16. These are the words of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your kindness to us in giving us this word. I pray that you would give us your spirit this morning, pour out your spirit upon us to give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding so that we might know particularly how and where and the way in which we are to obey and apply these words for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our celebration of Christmas is all about the arrival of the one who was given to us. For unto us a son is given, it says in Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a son is given. There's a gift. The Christ was given. God so loved the world in our text that he gave. Isaiah's promise, in in Isaiah's promise, there are two words that are repeated twice, and that, that particular phrase emphasizes the reality of God's great gift. Those words are unto us. Unto us a son is given. So as we consider these texts, John tells us that God gave us his only begotten son because he loved the world. He did it so that anyone who believed in that son should not perish, but be delivered from the wrath that was already resting upon him, and so that he could be ushered into everlasting life. He's not brought from a position of neutrality, and it's not like he's standing in a neutral spot, and then he could either go in the life direction or the death direction. It says at the end of John 3 that the person who does not believe God's wrath is resting on him already. He's already in a condition of condemnation. So we we come to this uh, choice, we come to this gospel presentation already on death row, already condemned, already under condemnation. So when John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him might not perish, uh, that perishing is a process he's already tangled up in. He's already perishing, he's already dead, he's already under condemnation. And so God loved the world in such a way as to enable someone to believe and be transferred from this condition of death to a condition of everlasting life. But this love that God has for the world is not something he he decided to do on a whim. It's not as though God created the world and then said, "Uh, you know, they're just pitiful looking creatures. Why not? I think I'll love them, right? He He doesn't decide to love us because that's just a, a, an afterthought or uh, let's flip a coin or eeny, meeny, miny, mo. There's nothing, nothing arbitrary or capricious about it. He doesn't love on a whim. Rather, we're taught God's love for the world arises from the way he is. 
God's love for the world arises from God's essential being. It proceeds from his ultimate and everlasting character. The love that God extends to the world, which we see in John 3.16, is the same love that we have known and believed in, the love that God has toward us, 1 John 4.16. So when we read 1 John 4.16 and it says, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us, well, what love is that that God has toward, toward us? What love have we known and believed in? The love that we've known and believed in is the love that's stated in John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it says, we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. But then John goes on to add something. The next three words are crucial. He says, God is love. We've known the love that God has toward us, the love that God extended to the world so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And why is this? John says, God is love. What kind of love is it? John tells us that God is love. And so it follows that the one who lives in love is living in God. And the one who lives in love has God living in him. But notice the potency of the phrase, God is love. And also notice that we can't substitute something else. We can't say God is love, and if we love, then we're in God, and if we love, that God is in us. That's, that's true. That's right out of the Bible. That's not the same thing as saying if we live in our idea of love, then God is living in us, or if we're, we live in our own cooked-up idea of love, that we're living in God. Now, we can't come up with our own sentimentalist version of love. We can't come up with our own idolatrous version of love, live in that, and then demand God live in us and us live in him. We, we live in love if we're living in the love that God exhibited when he uh, showed his love to the world by giving his only begotten son. So I want you to notice that the potency of that phrase, God is love. There are, there are oceanic depths of theology here. We can't even begin to... Uh, start a, uh, an understanding of what's going on in this. Um, but given the, what the Bible says, we have to try. We have, we have to have at it. We have to see what we can do. It's sort of like you're standing on the, on the beach of an infinite ocean, throwing pebbles, um, throwing pebbles into it and thinking, maybe I could make a splash that would, the ripples would get to the other side. Well, no, it's infinite. You're, you're not, you're not going to be able to uh, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we're just, we will just begin to have started to plumb the depths of what God is doing here. Well, God is love. What does that mean? What it, well, first, what does it not mean? We have to avoid the deep error that comes from shallow hearts. Before we're converted to God through Christ, we tend to veer in one of two directions. The unbelieving heart naturally gravitates in two different directions directions. Whenever we conceive of ultimate reality, we either imagine unity at the top or we imagine plurality at the top. We can imagine a unified thing and we can imagine diversity. We can imagine diversity. We can imagine unity. We can't get the two together. And this is an ancient problem in philosophy. Uh, it, the Greeks called it the problem, the problem of the one and the many. So the Greek philosopher Parmenides emphasized unity, unity at the top, all is one. This is monism 
Everything is unified. Everything is one. All is unified. And the certain things follow from that. As Charles Manson once said, if God is one, what is evil? If God is one, there is no such thing as evil. There are no distinct, there's no ethical distinctions. If God is one, what is evil? Well, there, that, that's the Parmenidean solution, ultimate unity. Then there was another philosopher, Heraclitus, who emphasized world. Diversity is king. World is king. You can't step into the same river twice. So think of the ultimate unity of all things as uh, colorless marble, an infinite slab of color colorless marble, no streaks, going in every direction that doesn't do anything. Just ultimate unity. And then on the other side, Heraclitus, you've got billions of F5 tornadoes with the requisite amount of confetti dumped into all of them. And, you've, and even that's too orderly because tornadoes are kind of orderly. So you have to, you have to imagine ultimate chaotic diversity, every little bits of confetti flying everywhere. So when you have a unified cosmos, you can't account for different diversity. You can't account for different things. And when you have a diverse account of the cosmos, you can't account for everything being in the same universe. You can't get them all together. That's the problem. And there was no real solution, um, there was no real solution uh, for it in pagan thought. Then when the Christians arrived and they were asked the question, basically, in effect, what is ultimate, one or many? The Christians said, exactly. That's exactly right. Exactly, exactly what is right. The, uh, the equal ultimacy of the one and the many. We worship the triune God of Scripture. We worship the God who is one, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we worship the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit, three infinite persons who, who together constitute one God. Now, that was, that was a momentous time in the history of Western civilization. And it accounts, I'll, I'll just run ahead for a moment, it accounts for why Christian civilizations have the capacity, which other civilizations do not have, Christian civilizations have the capacity to bring form and freedom together. They can bring form, they can bring a unified concept and diversity together, and there's not a contradiction between them. Everybody can be different. We have the model in the body of Christ. Everybody can be different, different organs, different parts of the body, but it's all just one body. It's all one body serving the same function, pursuing the same thing, and yet we've got the liver and the fingernail and the toes and the ankles, all these different parts of the body. And uh, this is something the New Testament hammers away at. We've got form and freedom together. Now, here's the problem. If, you, if, you, uh, if the potency of the Christian gospel is waning, not that the gospel itself wanes, not the potency of the gospel itself wanes, but in how Christians believe it, how Christians are holding to it, how Christians are preaching it, if the influence of the Christian faith is waning in a culture as it is in ours, an unbelieving culture is going to go in one of two directions. They're either going to go in the authoritarian direction, or they're going to go in the anarchistic direction. It's either going to be unity at the top or diversity at the top. So if we go in the direction of unity, unity at the top, it'll be some form of Unitarianism. And by Unitarianism, I'm not referring to the denomination. I'm referring to the idea of one 
uh, solitary, one solitary God at the top of all things. It could be deism, it could be Islam or the various forms of Islam, or it could be the generic God of American civic religion, a solitary unified being at the top of all things. Unity is emphasized. Unity at the top is emphasized. The God at the top of this system is a solitary monad, the ultimate hermit god, the greatest bachelor that ever was. And that is really sad. That's just a sad picture. Ultimate hermit god. And especially, especially before there's a created order, before anything is created, what do you have? You have God, the ultimate infinite loner. God, ultimately lonely. God, ultimately abandoned. That's what, you, that's what you've affirmed. You can't say, and consequently, you cannot say God is love. Right? Well, there's no beloved. There's no one to love. There's no one there. So the other direction is to assume some sort of multiplicity at the top, diversity at the top. This reduces to some form of polytheism, many gods, and because each of these gods is contained by the cosmos, the cosmos is this big box and all the gods are in it, and we're in it too, and so on. So uh, this cosmos is the whole show. Over time, the cosmos in its entirety tends to assume the place of ultimacy, which also veers toward a form of pantheism. Right? So you've got... Um, Basically, in polytheistic systems, as with Hinduism, on the street level, it's polytheistic, and the philosophical level, it's pantheistic. So the, the Hindu philosophers are pantheist, and the, the people on the street are worshiping uh, this god or that god. They've got millions of these gods. So these two ways of thinking have a political expression as well. The Unitarian system is a model of the cosmos that is a tower of power. It's just simply raw power. And so the political arrangement that reflects this, remember that we become like what we worship. So in Psalm 115, the idols are described. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have feet, but they can't walk. So these idols have all these organs of sense, but they can't do anything with any of them. And then the psalmist says, those that make them are like unto them. Those who make these idols become like what they worship. We become like what we worship. We're becoming Christ-like. When Christ comes again, we're going to see him and we're going to become like him because we're going to see him as he is. We are being trans as we come to worship him. We are being transformed week to week from one degree of glory to another because we are, be we are beholding the face of Jesus Christ as he is proclaimed in the gospel, as we approach him in the sacrament and so on. We, we are facing Jesus Christ and as we worship Jesus Christ, we become more like Jesus Christ. When idolaters worship their idols, they become more and more like the idols they worship. So in cultures that worship cruel gods, those cultures become cruel. Cultures that worship sensuous gods become sensuous and debauched and so on. You become like what you worship. So the political arrangement that reflects polytheism is called pluralism. And you've heard that referred to in our society as a term of praise. We're, well, we're a pluralistic society. That's diversity is our strength. Diversity is our greatness. Well, diversity is only great if you have some sort of container, if there's some sort of 
form that can hold it all together. Otherwise, diversity is just 100 million BBs, greased BBs that someone dropped on the floor. It's, there goes your diversity, but there's no society, there's no coherence, there's no way to have it all um, hang together. Or you could have your box, you could have your container and have it be a solid box, a unified box, clean through and nobody can do anything. There's no distinction. There's no difference between this person or that person. So those are our two options. The Unitarian system is a tower of power model and the political arrangement veers toward authoritarian. The political arrangement that reflects polytheism is pluralism. There's usually a hidden unity in that system somewhere, but on the surface, we at least have many voices, many laws, many gods. So for example, this is just a, a point of illustration. I mentioned Islam uh, a moment ago as an expression of this Unitarian um, uh, system. Allah in Islam does not reveal himself. He does not give himself, he does not reveal himself. The only thing that Allah reveals in the Quran is his will. He reveals his will. He reveals his demand for you. And the word Muslim means someone who submits, one who submits. Islam means submission. So you've got ultimate demand from the top, do this or you die, and you do it and hope it's good enough, but God's not, Allah's not gonna tell you whether it's good enough or not, you just, you just do it and hope that it's good enough. He says, do it. He reveals his will. I want you to go do that. He reveals his will, doesn't reveal himself, doesn't give himself. And so you just do it or do your idea of what, he's what you think he's talking about and hope for the best. So the unbelieving mind is incapable of resolving this problem of the one and the many. This is why we, we alternate between the two. Unbelieving cultures careen between the, the two. They, they'll, we need unity for a while. We need to pull it all together. And so you have an authoritarian phase and then everybody gets tired of that, gets sick and tired of that and everything blows up. Somebody holds a Woodstock festival and all the monkeys get out of the cage and everybody goes over here and they live in pandemonium for 40 years or so. And then everybody gets sick and tired of that and then they careen back into some sort of restrictive um, restrictive way of living. They've got no way of holding form and freedom together. In Christian communities, in Christian societies, in Christian towns, in Christian churches, you ought to have a maximum amount of order combined with a maximum amount of liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is order. Right? The, everything comes together, but it can only come together because Jesus is the manifestation of God. Jesus is the gift of God. Well, let's um, pursue this a little bit. When the early church was battling through the various controversies involving the Trinity, surrounding the Trinity, followed by the issues surrounding the relationship of the human and the divine in the Lord Jesus Christ, these were weighty controversies. They were not non-troversies. They were, they, they were uh, a great deal was at stake. Many of the freedoms that we are, that we currently enjoy, and incidentally are in the process of losing, uh, we're in the process of losing because we're losing our, gris, our grasp of these truths, all right, because our forefathers established these things, stood for them, fought for them, defined them, and maintained them over centuries, 
Because of that, we have a maximum amount of order and predictability, which enables you to pursue your liberty, right? When, when everything is in, if you woke up one morning and there were absolutely no rules, no rules about anything, right? No, no musical rules at all. You would, for the first time in your life, be a musical genius. Whatever you did wouldn't matter. It also wouldn't sound any good. It would just be ultimate, ultimate chaos, right? So if, if you have an ordered system where you have scales and notes and relationships, you've got an ordered system, and then you can have, as far as we can tell, an infinite amount of melodies come out of these notes. How's that possible? Well, it's, poss it's possible because God is triune. It's possible because Jesus is Lord. It's that's why it's possible. So you can either go the route of chaos where everything is sort of ultimate progressive jazz, or you can go in the, in the other direction where you've just got one note and it's kind of low, so we're not sure what, which one it is. So what do we do? Prior to the creation of the world, when there was nothing but God, prior to the creation of the world, when there was nothing but God, how was it possible to say that God is love? How is it possible to say that God is love when God's the only one? How can we possibly claim that love is an aspect of God's essential character? If there's no one else, if God is simply the ultimate solitary being, there can be no beloved. There is no one to love. And so consequently, there can be no lover. If there is no beloved, there can be no lover. And if there can be no lover, then God is not love. God doesn't love. If God is simply an ultimate loner, then he's all by himself. If there is no beloved, then God didn't start loving until he created the world. And he needed to create the world in order to start loving. You, <coughs> excuse me, you sometimes see this in folk tales of the creation. You know, God in the sky was decided one day that he was lonesome, and so he decided to make uh, us. Why would he make us if he was lonesome? <laughs> That's a separate problem. All right, so God was lonesome, and so he came down, and he made man so he could have somebody to talk to. That's, that's folk religion, that's sub-Christian, uh, sub it's anti-biblical. God did not create out of any deficiency in himself. He was not trying to fill up any holes in himself. He was not trying to solve a personal problem that he had. When God created, he was creating out of grace. He created as an act of love, and it was an act of love that was superfluous. It was not necessary for him to, to do. It was gratuitous. He created us, and he created us not so that he could see us walking around, but so that we could see us walking around, so that we could give thanks to him, so that we could give him the glory. So if God is ultimately by himself, there's no, there's no beloved. He's not a lover. So this would mean that he was dependent on something external to himself in order to be love, which is intolerable, not to be thought of. God is in no way dependent, uh, as we just, I think, uh, said this morning. God were hungry, would he tell us? If God were lonely, would he call us? Right, that's, that's not how it works. God 
is absolutely self-sufficient. God is utterly, inexhaustibly, wonderfully at harmony with himself. And on top of all that, he created us. He created a world in which he would have to go and die. And that was not to fill up a void within himself. So, God is love. God is love apart from any contingent created order. God is love apart from our existence. God is already love. Before the worlds were made, God is love. Before a single galaxy came into existence, God is love. Before Adam was fashioned out of the dust of the ground, God is love. That's the way he is. So what does it mean? Biblically defined, love means revealing yourself and it means giving yourself. It means revealing yourself and giving yourself. When God loved the world, what did he do? When God loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave. That's the key. God so loved the world that he gave. That's what love is. What did he give? Well, he gave his only begotten son. The word here is monogenes, for only begotten, and the clear implication is that he gave himself. But then, what did he do? This is also important. He told us about it. First, God gave us Jesus so that we could have everlasting life. And then God gave us John 3.16 to tell us that he had given Jesus so that we could have everlasting life. God gave himself in Jesus and God revealed himself in the word about Jesus. God gave himself in the gospel and God revealed himself in the gospel that tells us about what Jesus did. So God gave us Jesus and God gave us his word. God gave us the incarnate word who died on the cross and God gave us his inscripturated word which tells us about the incarnate word. So God gave us himself and then God revealed himself. God gave us himself and then he revealed himself. These gifts are not offered to us instead of himself. He's not buying us off. He is not saying, here, let me give you something to get you to leave me alone. I, I can just create stuff and I can give them to you and that'll, that, that'll keep you quiet for a while. He's not doing that. He's not fobbing things off on us instead of himself. And this brings us to an aside about Christmas presents. All of you are in the throes of Christmas shopping, or at least you ought to be, husbands, <laughs> That's why God gave us the day before Christmas Eve, right? <laughs> but that's, this is not a marriage sermon. <clears throat> so why do we give presents at Christmas? Why do we give presents at Christmas? What is all that about? What we are doing is celebrating the greatest gift ever given. We're celebrating it, and we celebrate it by imitating it. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, 2 Corinthians 9, 15. God gave us an unspeakable gift, and remember, you become like what you worship. We, be, we are worshiping the giver. We are worshiping the gracious one. We are worshiping the one who overflows. We are worshiping the God of the surplus. We are worshiping the God of generosity. He is the one who gave us his unspeakable gift, and we are worshiping him. We are imitating that. 
The gift that God gave to us was ineffable, indescribable, beyond all mortal calculation. Gift is the hinge upon which all of human history turns. Gift is the meaning of all of it. Grace is the meaning of all of it. Grace provides the meaning of life. This is because we worship the God who is gracious. God is kind. God so loved the world. And the world didn't deserve his love, but he loved the world anyway because God is love. God is kindness. He is graciousness. So, in the beginning, God gave us a perfect world in the first instance, which we promptly wrecked in our insolence and rebellion. I'm sure that there are more than a few people here who have had that experience of getting a great Christmas present and wrecking it within a day. Right, you, you, you break it within a day. Here's I had this wonderful thing, and I, and I busted it. I broke it. God gave us this planet. God gave us this world. God gave us a perfect world, perfect marriage, perfect commission, perfect job to do, perfect circumstances, and we wrecked it. So then God undertook to repair the, the thing that was wrecked, to repair that cosmos, making it much more glorious than it had been before. It tells us that in Romans 5, that the work of the second Adam is going to far surpass the the damage done by the first Adam. So uh, God is undertook to repair everything, to repair the the damage that sin had brought, brought upon us, making it much more glorious than before. And he did this by bearing the penalty of sin himself. He gave us himself so that he could bear the penalty of our sin himself. This is how he gave himself, and the Christmas message reveals how he gave himself. Jesus did not take shape in the womb of Mary so that we could have a sentimental and cute baby to adore. We adore him, we worship him, but we worship worship him in the context of the story. So he's laid in a manger, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, but Herod's men are after him. All right, this, is, this is not a softly falling snow and silver bells story. This is a high adventure drama story. And Joseph and Mary have to flee into Egypt. They have to get up and go because Herod is trying to kill him. This is a high stakes adventure. And Jesus took on that body so that he could grow up in it, so that there would be something that could be nailed to a cross. In his essential being, God is immortal. God dwells in unapproachable light. God is immortal. God can, and immortality means he cannot die. Jesus took on a human body so that he would have something to die with. He he took on a human body so that he had something that could bleed for you something that could be scourged for you. Because he didn't have that prior, prior to the incarnation, prior to that first Christmas, he didn't have that capacity because he was uh, God, essentially God. He was in- incapable of dying. He had to become a man in order to become mortal. So, God gave himself. The whole Christmas message is how God gave himself and how he was preparing to give himself ultimately on the cross, even as far, even as early 
as Bethlehem. And Mary is told this from the very beginning. You're going to be pierced to the heart also. This is, this is not a sentimentalist Christmas. This is not a sentimentalist thing. This is hard as nails, and it deals with sin, and God is love, and God is, is dealing with our problems in an unflinching and very raw way. So when you are shopping for presents, you are imitating that. That's what you're imitating. When you buy a present for someone, you're not doing it so that they will leave you alone for another year, or at least until their birthday. You've got different layers of friends, right? You've got the no, no presents at all friends. You've got the Christmas presents once a year friends. You've got the Christmas and birthday present friends. You, you, you know, you can rank them at home if you want. But if you, if you say, oh, you know, thank God that's over with. Uh, you know, here's your stupid present. Stu you don't say here's your stupid present, but you just sort of pitch, pitch it at them and, I'm, and I'm, done, I'm done for another year. Then let's just tell you that you ought to reconsider the spirit in which you are pursuing this. So you're not, you're not buying people off. This is not, you might think that some merchants are in this as an extortion racket. They're trying to manipulate, guilt you into buying things you couldn't afford to give. And, you know, there's, there are people doing that. But you're Christians. You shouldn't be doing that. You're Christians. You're, you should be giving what you give as a token of yourself. You're giving yourself. And, and you're giving yourself because you're imitating the one who gave himself. That's what Christmas presents are all about. Now, back to Nicaea and Chalcedon. Nicaea testifies to the truth that God is love. When we say Jesus is God, when we say there's one God, one God, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and three persons, one God, that is the mystery of the Trinity. And no, we can't do all the math. We, we, can, we can sketch out the, what we're saying and what we're not saying. But if we, if we understood God's full, if we understood God's being in all its fullness, uh, God understands his being in all its fullness, but we do not. We cannot. The, the desire to understand this exhaustively is the primeval temptation to be as God. You can't, you can't understand this fully. You can understand what we're saying and what we're not saying, but you can't understand it in all its depth. So we've confessed that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. If the eternal word is God, then God loves his Son eternally, which means that God is love. Who is the lover? God the Father. Who is the beloved? God the Son. Does God the Son return the love that the Father has for him? Yes, it cannot be any other way. Love is not an add-on extra. Love is not something we say, okay, we now we have our definition of God who is absolute being, absolute power. Uh, let's make him nice. All right, so we're not bringing kindness or niceness or love to it after the fact. We're talking about love as right at the center of how God essentially is. Love is not an add-on extra. Love is an essential part of who God is. The Father loves the Son eternally. The Son loves the Father eternally. Their mutual infinite love is himself an infinite person, the Holy Spirit of God. I'm following Augustine here. I th um, there's no text that explicitly says this, but I think that this is the best way to make sense 
of the scriptural data. This is why the Spirit is described as the Spirit of God in Matthew 3.16, and the the same Spirit is described as the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8.9. You've been in situations where you've walked into a home where the, the people in that home just love each other to pieces. They, they, they love each other, and more than that, they like each other, they get along, they're having a raucous good time, and you walk in on it. You know what it's like to, you can feel the spirit of that home is almost palpable. You walk into that home, and it, I've described it before, it's, it's like someone's been baking spiritual bread in the house all afternoon, and it has, that, that aroma suffuses the whole thing. Well, if fallen sinful creatures like us can occasionally find ourselves in that place where the spirit of a marriage or the spirit of a home has that kind of palpable reality, what would it be like if an infinitely loving person was loved and loved in return, loved and loved, was loved in return by another infinitely loving person, the son, the father loving the son eternally and the son loving the father eternally. Uh, that love is a person. That mutual love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father is an infinite person, the Holy Spirit of God. And Chalcedon means that the God who is love is that love unto us. The uh, Romans says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts? By the Holy Spirit. All right, have you, you may have noticed in all the, all the epistles, uh, every last one of the epistles says something like, Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is the Holy Spirit not mentioned? The Holy Spirit is not not mentioned in any of these epistles. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm convinced, and here I'm following Jonathan Edwards, that the grace and peace is the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace, the Holy Spirit to you. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Spirit of the Father. He's the Spirit of the Son and their mutual love for one another. And what does Jesus do at Pentecost? He, again, he gives himself. Christmas is the celebration of God giving himself in the incarnation. And Pentecost is the celebration of God giving himself in the person of the Holy Spirit so that the love of God, that the love that the Father and the Son share, as Jesus prays in John, uh, John 17, that love is poured out in our hearts, in our lives, by means of the Holy Spirit. So returning to our text, what are we, what are we supposed to do as recipients of that love? Returning to the text, we are to dwell in the love that he has bestowed. And, and which is how we are enabled to dwell in him. When we dwell in his love, we dwell in him, and when we dwell in him, he dwells in us. One last concluding remark about all this. What gets in the way of this? This is all uh, straight out of the word of God. This is straight out of scripture. And isn't it inspiring and isn't it lovely? And what gets in the way? Sin. Pride. I don't, I'm, I'm having kind of a quarrel with so-and-so, and I'm having a kind of, a, and, and, and she kind of gets on my nerves, and I don't believe, if I were to just drop my quarrel with them, she would think she was right, and I just don't, <laughs> that's something I just cannot handle, other people thinking they're right. If I go to apologize to someone, the last thing I want them to say is, yes, you're right, you're forgiven, when it was their, their, their little problem, their, I was, I was trying to inspire them to go. I was going first because I'm magnanimous. So I was, 
I'm not, I'm not really apologizing, you say to yourself. I was priming the pump. I wasn't apologizing. I was, I, was, I was trying to nudge you so that you would apologize. That kind of foolishness has just got to go. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The Holy Spirit is poured out in our midst so that anything that, is, anything that exists between you and any other brother or sister here in this room can be put right by you today. Today, not next Sunday, today. Put it right. Drop it. Let it go. You have a quarrel? Drop it. You have a resentment? Drop it. You have a bitterness? Drop it. Let it go. Why? Well, because we're Christians. And because, it says, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. How much, did he, how much was there in us to, for him to be aggrieved with? How much, how much uh, if God were to mark iniquities, who could stand? God had love for us despite all our sins, despite all of our issues, and we have known and believed that he treats us that way. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love, that kind of love, that kind of let it go love, that kind of all is forgiven love, that kind of I'm not going to hold any of this stuff anymore. Life's too short. Life is too short. You've got too few Christmases between now and the time you die to be going through it that way. Why do we wreck our holiday seasons? Why do we do that? We wreck our holiday seasons because we're not paying attention to what they're all about. Christmas is where God gave himself. Pentecost is where God gave himself. God, from Genesis to Revelation, always gives himself. And he's fashioning us into beings who are like him, who are learning and are willingly learning how to give ourselves. How do we give ourselves? We look to Jesus and we imitate what we see. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we think about these things, as we meditate on them, that you would bless us and keep us. Show us the way to application. Show us what we need to do to put things right with anybody that we're uh, at variance with, that we have trouble with. I pray that you teach and instruct us Help us. We are frail in this, and we, we ask for your strength and for your power. Amen. You may be seated. It has been pointed out that the gifts of the Magi, the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh, are all associated biblically with the tabernacle and temple worship. Gold covered the Holy of Holies. Frankincense and myrrh were the ingredients in incense and anointing oils. So in a wonderful sort of preview, you have Gentiles bringing the supplies for the new tabernacle to the new tabernacle himself. As John famously says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But of course, the additional glory is that while the Magi do this, Herod is plotting to murder Jesus. And in a matter of days, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are escaping into Egypt to stay out of Herod's reach. So the new tabernacle in flesh has left Israel. Rather than being at the center of the camp, as it was in ancient Israel, it has been driven outside the camp, where the Israelites left their trash and refuse, and where the unclean lepers hid. But if you think about it, this too is wonderful and prefigures what Jesus came to do. Hebrews says that Jesus suffered outside the camp in order to identify with sinners in their shame. He suffered outside the camp so that his blood would sanctify his people who were outside the camp. 
Clean people don't need to become clean. Only the unclean need to be cleansed. Only the sick need to be healed. Only the profane need to be sanctified. And so in a wonderful reversal, the tabernacle has been turned inside out. The holy of holies that was fiercely guarded on the inside in the old covenant has now become the outside where Christ is in the new covenant. And that is where we must go to him, outside the camp, where the trash is, where the lepers are. And that is where this table still is. It's a most holy table with most holy food for the unclean who have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. But you might say, so where's the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh now? Where has it gone? Your prayers are the incense. Your baptism is the anointing oil. And you are the gold, sanctified, purified, and glorified by our great high priest, Jesus the righteous. So come and worship. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you gave your son and thank you that he came to us and he came to us outside the camp where we were. Father, thank you that by his blood we have made, been made clean, that we have been made holy. Father, we worship you in Jesus' name and amen. amen. We've been reminded this morning that because God is Trinity, because God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, God is love. God is eternally love. And so God is love in giving, and God is love in receiving and giving again. And so this is the charge. As you are shopping, as you're wrapping presents, as you're seeing the presents piling up, as you're thinking about it all, let your prayer be, God, let me be love like you. Let me give like you give. Let me receive like you receive. And let me give again like you because I want to love like you love because you are my God. Let that be your prayer and go now with the blessing of your God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. And God's people said,